0: It's been, a, it's been a few weeks since we've spent any time at all uh, in Zephaniah, and I uh, uh, do apologise for that. Uh, but those of you, uh, I guess, who are here for chapters 1 and 2, you may be sort of breathing a, a few breaths of relief, in a sense, because it's, it's pretty awesome stuff, isn't it, chapter 1 and 2. It is a brutal read. But why is that? Well, Zephaniah is a book, I guess, which polarises. It pushes us to very uncomfortable places at times. And strikingly, behind that palpable discomfort that you may feel as you read the book, well, there lies God. God is not distant. He is front and centre. He is involved and He is not removed. God is introduced in a number of ways in the book, as He is introduced in a number of ways throughout the whole of the Old Testament and the Bible. But very interestingly, within the book of Zephaniah, uh, in the Hebrew, he is described there as the mighty warrior, the El Gibor. Now, I am no Hebrew scholar. I have one in front of me, which is slightly frightening. But in the Old Testament, God is uh, described in numerous different ways. Let me give you a few, which you may know. In Hebrew, is the El Amet, the God of Truth; the El Shaddai, the God Almighty; the El Elyon, the God Most High; the, the El Olam, the God Everlasting. But here, not uniquely, but in a more concentrated way than anywhere else in the Bible, we see God described as the El Gabor, the mighty warrior. Now I guess the question for God's people as they heard Zephaniah proclaim the word of God was this, how are you going to face this mighty warrior? And it's interesting because only two options are presented. The first option we've already seen uh, throughout the first couple of chapters, and it's uncomfortable, isn't it? God is the mighty warrior of judgment. Just flip back to chapter 1, verse 14, if you can, and you'll see just the nature of his judgment there. The great day of the Lord is near, it says. Near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. Essentially because the mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. Oh, you can meet the mighty warrior that way if you want But God, in his love and his kindness, is proclaiming these words through Zephaniah, in a sense, in a loving way. It's a warning to people for their continued indifference and rebellion against God. God is not going to overlook that. Rather, he he lovingly cries out to them in warning. God is not morally indifferent, you see. Now, I'm sure many of the people that were listening to this, they were good temple goers. They were probably very charming people. But the problem was that they added to their lives of worship, going to the temple, uh, the other, they added to things like uh, worshipping other idols. I guess they just didn't want to be seen to be different from those around them. Uh, we might call that syncretism. They, they, they were compromised, essentially. But God is a jealous God, desiring and requiring exclusivity in the hearts and the lives and the minds of His people. And the day of the Lord mentioned numerous times throughout the early chapters of this letter. Uh, speaks of a day when God will make his final evaluation of his people and judge them accordingly. See, chapter one is a, is a warning. It's a warning of a day of reckoning that was to come. Uh, it's a loving warning shot, though, across the compromised, temple-going lives that were listening. It is a merciful, rescuing cry of a God who had covenanted himself to his people Chapter one, in a sense, is like a father shouting at the top of his voice as he sees his child about to walk across a road, just not thinking at all. A bus is coming. And the father shouts out. The child's mind is elsewhere. They're not concentrating on the, what, what is about to happen, they're about to head for destruction. And the father cries out in love. And the cry is scary. But it is a loving warning. God will judge. And it will be terrifying. And the language of chapter 1, if you flip back to just those early verses, verses two, three, four, and 5. You'll see that God is the, will sweep away. He will destroy. He will stretch out his hand against all who do not seek him. The warning is clear. As you get to the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1, 2 and 3, you'll see it's the humble. Those who seek the Lord, they will be the ones who are sheltered and not crushed. But you have to ask, are these just the, the empty threats of a benign deity? Just in the words here within a Bible. Well, if you go then to chapter 2, verse 4 onwards, you'll see that God makes it clear that when he speaks, it will be. Chapter 2 foretells of God's coming judgment. And let's be clear, just if you want to be clear, go to the British Museum. You see, all this happened. The mighty warrior came, as promised here. Here. God in his merciful patience had withheld his right and just wrath. But now was the time. That is what these words are for telling. And the question is, for whom in chapter 2? For whom is it coming? And the haunting reality, I guess, of chapter 2 was that uh, it was really speaking of the universality of God's judgment. North, south, east, west. West. Ethnically related nations or not. Big cities, small collections of towns and villages. No one escapes and that's the point. Actually, why don't you just flip back to the inside cover of your Bibles. Uh, you'll see there, it's around the other way, you have to go to portrait now. Uh, but you'll see in the bottom left hand corner there's a map saying Israel in the Old Testament. And you'll see Ammon and Moab to the east. You'll see Philistia to the west, Philistines. And up there in the north, you, you will get the, uh, the other nations. And down the south, you'll get the Kushites, which are mentioned in chapter 11. Down south, that's modern-day Ethiopia. But the Cushite empire stretched into Egypt, which you, I guess, would know well. You see, the point is, no one will escape. Wherever you look, whoever they are, no one is going to escape the mighty warrior in his judgment. The Philistines in the west and the Kushites from the south. You see, these, these guys were really sophisticated nations. Mighty empires. They had so much to offer the world. But God, the mighty warrior, simply crushes them. In a sense, he crushes them despite their righteousness, despite their good deeds, despite the public order that they brought Now, some of you, you may be old enough, I'm not sure. Some of you may be old enough to remember that amazing sketch by Monty Python uh, in one of their films. And uh, it it, it is where there are a bunch of rebels trying to assassinate uh, the Roman emperor of the time. And the scene is set as they're they're plotting and planning. Uh, And John Cleese is the kind of the, the rebel leader. And he states this kind of rhetorical question, not expecting an answer, but he states it uh, to try and strengthen his cause for bringing down the Romans. And he says, quite famously now, and quite dismissively as well, what have the Romans ever given us? Some of you and your smirks obviously know about this. Suddenly, uh, after a short pause, one of the masked bandits around them sort of sheepishly puts it up his hand and says, well, well they gave us an aqueduct. And John know has to admit, okay, apart from an aqueduct, what have the Romans ever given us? And then another one, well, they gave us really good sanitation. Apart from the aqueduct, sanitation, and he goes on the list, eventually gets to this ridiculous uh, sanitation, education, roads, irrigation, medicine, wine, public baths, public order, and so on. What have the Romans ever given us? It's a brilliant sketch. Do look on YouTube later, but the point is this. See, whatever the Romans had done, it wasn't good enough for those that they had crushed and occupied. You see, whatever the Philistines, whatever Cushites have done, whatever righteous uh, things that they had accrued, whatever good they had contributed to the world at large, didn't matter. They had ignored, they had abused their creator God. And so they faced him as the mighty warrior of judgment. And likewise, you might look closer to home and you think, well, we've got a wonderful justice system. We have, and we should be very thankful for it. We have a wonderful welfare system. We have, and we should be really thankful for that. And the NHS and so many good things that we as a nation have contributed to the world. We do good, but we'll never meet the righteous requirement of God, either corporately or individually. The point is, we need a saviour. Now the situation, actually, as you turn east now on that map, you'll see the people of Moab and Ammon, and we saw them in chapter two. Their situation was even worse. And do you know why? Because they were the ones who abused God's people. You see that in chapter two, verse eight. They taunted and Mm insulted them. They neglected to understand, though, that God, when He covenants Himself to people, mainly uh, people here today as well, us, He's fiercely protective. So Moab and Ammon felt it. God's judgment came on them and it was unrelenting, as you can see, as you remember back in chapter (coughs) 2. It's funny that, isn't it? You may look at people like Kim Jong-un of North Korea and President Assad of Syria and you have all sorts of feelings towards them. Uh, They seem to be pretty awful people. Their treatment of Christians and many other people groups is absolutely shocking. But I wonder... uh, utmost in our feelings for them should be an absolute sense of pity which should lead us to pray for them because when the mighty warrior comes in judgment for them they will feel the full force of God's justice for their ill treatment of his people and his church. As we see here, it's not our responsibility to bring vengeance on such men but yes, bring justice, absolutely. Absolutely in every way and legal way that we can, but vengeance, that ultimate justice, belongs to God alone. And therefore, pray. Pray for such leaders. But also pray for the leaders of our own country, because God's people and God's ways have never been held in such low regard in this country in the last number of hundred years. We may be in the, you know, the fifth largest economy and doing very well in many, many ways But as the Moabites and the Ammonites were crushed by Babylon in 582 BC, therefore we must realize that we are not beyond the reach and the escape of the mighty warrior of judgment. Did you know that when when God did stretch out his hand against, for example, Assyria, that last group in chapter 2, the greatest superpower of the time, what happened? It was literally wiped off the face of the planet. The old city of Nineveh that's mentioned here in chapter 2, verse 13, is exactly across the river Tigris from this, the town of Mosul, the city of Mosul that we hear of Iraq, modern day Iraq. In 612 BC, Nineveh was desolated and left to be swallowed up by the desert. It was nothing. It was only 200 or so years ago when the British Museum sent some people, explorers, to go and find some artifacts to see whether the Assyrian Empire actually existed. That we ever saw any more. An ancient superpower essentially was wiped off the face of the planet. And if that wasn't enough, the most shocking part of Zephaniah is still to come. And chapter 3, you see, begins with the same theme. The the subject is still the the judgment of God, but the recipients of that judgment. This is what should really, really, really shock us, in a sense. And here we get to our first point. All will be judged by the mighty warrior. See, the funny thing about chapter 3, as it begins, have a look down, is there's no mention in the original text to show us that God is now speaking about or to his own people. (coughs) The chapter numbers that you see here, or the little headings that we have really helpfully, nothing wrong with them, but they're not in the original text at all. They've been added for our convenience, and that's really good. But the ambiguity in the text is is actually intentional. The the point is this. The people of God, that God through Zephaniah is addressing here, they were just like everyone else. What God was saying about the arrogant people of Assyria, just a couple of verses before, could equally apply to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, God's own. And please realise how difficult this would have been for the people to hear this, as it may be for us right now. I accept that, I fully understand. Can you imagine, you can even imagine them, as they, they heard, for example, judgment and Jerusalem in the same sentence, their, their minds would probably by default just have switched off and go, well, surely not. Those words just don't fit in the same sentence. But look at what God said to them. Let's just dive into the text a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 3. They're, they're rebellious. They're defiled people. They, they thought they knew better than God. They, they turned their backs on him and, and they defiled themselves. And sense, they wouldn't listen, they said, oh, I'm going to go my own way. Verse two, she obeys no one, accepts no correction, does not trust in the Lord, does not draw near to the Lord. There's disobedience, there's faithlessness everywhere in the people, but notice the slippery slope. That rebellious heart, it begins there. They they turn to becoming loners. They don't want to hear the the correction of the word the word of God or the people of God. They think they know better. Perhaps it's just one thing in their life. They go, Oh, I don't want to hear on that one. Therefore we see that the slope kind of gets gets steeper. They 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 want to draw near to God, we see. Whether in his word or on the gathering of his people, do you hear the warnings? Do you see how important the regular meeting of God's people really is? Regularly digesting God's word and applying it to your heart. Having someone that you know, close to you, is able to point out and say, hey, I love you. But really, that way of thinking, that way of living, really? Leaders are not beyond this dispensing of justice, are they? They're described in verse 3 as roaring lions, evening wolves. It's a damning indictment, isn't it? Where they should have been instructing and protecting the people they're described in such kind of barbaric ways. They've been essentially eating them up, leading them astray, even using them for their own gain. And the prophets of verse 4 are similarly condemned. They're reckless with the truth. Careless with the souls that they teach. Arrogant before God. This is utter folly. And God is bringing... His judgment on those who associate themselves publicly with him. These people are the temple goers. They look wonderful. They're the church goers of today. These people may may appear so good, so righteous. But in reality, they just may not be willing to humble themselves before God and and see their need for a saviour. The question is, are you one of those people? Do you know those kind of people? And in hearing the word of God and the spirit stirring in your heart today, have you lovingly warned those people? But what, what did God do with these kind of people? The funny thing is, we just don't know. Look at chapter 3 verse 6, God through Zephaniah begins to summarise again what he's done with the other nations and once again the ambiguity in the text suggests that what the indistinguishable people of Jerusalem will receive will be just like the other nations. So if you want to see what happens to the people of Jerusalem, go back to chapter 2, bring it all together and it's probably that, Awful. There's no special treatment here, no relenting from the mighty warrior and his judgment. And so what happened? Did Judah and the people of Jerusalem heed the warning? Well, history tells us they did. And they didn't. Well, they did for a while. There was a sense of a bit of a reformation that went happened. They, they were you know, okay for a kind of couple of decades. But they were set in their stubborn ways and by 587 BC their day of the Lord came as the mighty warrior God in his judgment stretched out his hand and using the enemies of God the Babylonians and they came into Jerusalem and they sacked it they brought it to the ground. It is thought that actually Zephaniah may have lived to see these prophecies that he spoke being fulfilled. But as I've mentioned before, a number of times, biblical uh, prophecies uh, often have kind of what we call multiple fulfillments. I don't know if you've ever climbed up a mountain. You know when you're kind of climbing up and you kind of, you think you see the top. You kind of, your heart and your mind is kind of like, oh, I'm going to get there and that'll be great. We'll sit down, look at the view. and, And then you get there and go, oh, there's another bit to go up. Well, the biblical prophecy is a bit like that. You get the first fulfilment and then there's another bit and then there's another bit. The prophecy here, speaking of the day of the Lord, that, that coming of judgment is first fulfilled in history. As we know, when these nations were destroyed, judged, sacked, as Jerusalem was sacked in 587 BC, but God will come again in judgments on another great day. That is when he poured out, his son, uh, poured out his judgment on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But there is a final, if you like, there's a final fulfillment of God's judgment to come. That ultimate day of the Lord, which this book lovingly warns us of and points us to. And the point for us, I guess, is simple. If we we choose to ignore this as a historical prophecy, should be kept a few hundred years back, you know, leave it there. We do so, I guess, at our peril. But please don't have the arrogance to say you, you haven't been warned. Because we will all be judged by God, the mighty warrior. The gathered who publicly identified themselves as God's people. The temple goes, the church goes. We see that they're not exempt Look at chapter 3, verse 8. I don't think God could be any clearer, could he? Look at chapter 3, verse 8. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by by the fire of my jealous anger. Look, I hope we're clear. All will be judged by the mighty warrior. But, the wonderful news of the Bible is this. It is the gospel, the good news. Second point, some will be saved. Some will be saved by the mighty warrior. warrior. I don't know about you, but have a look at verse 14 in chapter 3. Does it seem to you slightly out of place it's funny, isn't it? Amidst this book, and it really is, I, 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 you know, I can't apologise for it, but it, it's hard, isn't it? Amidst this book, verse 14 stands out, you don't really expect it to be there. Amidst all this judgement, all this crushing, what happens? Is this a place to sing with joy? Amidst all this slaughter, God has calls his chosen and faithful people to sing for joy. And you have to ask yourself, is this kind of the perverse decree of a power crazed deity drunk in his own splendour? This sounds more like, more natural coming from the lips of someone like Nero. You know, as he's has got asked the Christians to sing for joy whilst he, he burnt them. And he did that. Now, we've got to understand that God calls them to sing not because of... Who they are and what they have done, not because of their circumstances. All the circumstances of the people will happen to them, around them, no. They're to sing for joy, to be glad and rejoice with all their hearts, verse 14, because of what God has done or will do. It's interesting, look at verse 15. It's written in the past tense. Does that slightly confuse you? It's interesting that, isn't it? The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The point is, he hasn't. He hasn't at this stage. But it's written in the past tense, and the Bible does this a number of times, to show that when God speaks, we need to know that will happen. It's an absolute certainty. And verse 16 speaks of that certain definite day that was coming. When wonderful things would happen for those who were truly God's people. They're described here as the remnant, the faithful, the leftovers, who would seek the Lord and trust in his righteousness and not their own. There are four things I'm going to briefly mention as we finish now. Four things that kind of summarise this end part. Uh, The things, if you like, that would happen for those who are truly God's. Are you listening? Because if you are a Christian here today, these are equally true of you. Firstly, God will vindicate his people. God will vindicate his people. In verse 11, we see they will never be put to shame. Verse 13, they'll never be afraid again. Can you imagine what that would feel like? To not fear anything? I know for us in the comfort of southwest London, this may not be slightly as impressive as it may be for others. But can you imagine the comfort of such words for the Christians in Syria right now? How will this happen? Well, then it happened literally. God turned back their enemies. We see that in verse fifteen, and He did, and He will for us. Now, that's a negative dealt with, but there's a positive in God's vindication of His people too. Flip forward to verse nineteen and twenty, right at the end of the chapter. Oh, look what happens here! It's brilliant. The people are praised and honoured in the land where they previously had been shamed. Verse 20, they're honoured and praised again. Their fortunes are restored. There's this wonderful, vindicating, divine justice. God will vindicate his people. Secondly, God will change his people. In verse 11, we see that they will no longer be haughty. Verse 13, they will do no wrong. They will not speak lies. I mean, again, how we have to ask, how is this possible? Because in verse 9 we see God purifies. He transforms them. Where before they swore and they worshipped and bowed down to other gods, their devotion and speech will be for him and him alone. Their faith in God as the faithful remnant of God's people will result in them becoming more like God, only through his transforming power that is equally true for us today as we come to him through his word and his spirit transforms us. No, not perfect, but being transformed more into the likeness of our saviour. Thirdly, God will gather his people. Look at verse 19 again. Wonderful, isn't it? We see the lame rescued. We see the exile gathered. Again, this all worked out in history. We know it came true, but it points us forward. Because if we are part of God's faithful remnant, those mercifully saved from God's just judgment, we too will be gathered and we too will be brought home. Our home is not the, the, the earthly Jerusalem that Nehemiah and Ezra have kind of built up later on in years. No, it is the heavenly Jerusalem that we've been looking at. In our studies in Revelation, where the lame will dance for eternity on streets of sapphire and ruby. God will gather his people. But lastly and fourthly, this is where your heart should essentially melt. God will rejoice over his people. In verse 10, we see the people of God, that faithful remnant, they, they offer their worship to God. This is One way going up to God, worship going to God. But amazing, the most amazing thing on this day of the Lord is found in verse 17. Because God will rejoice as he sings over his faithful people. God will sing over you and me if you have put your trust in him. He takes great delight in you, you see that? He will quiet you with his love. Rejoicing over you, I, I just just spend a, a moment. Can you imagine anything better? The answer is no. You cannot. But do you see the contrast? In verse seventeen, it's amazing, isn't it? God is still the elder boy, still the mighty warrior there. But now he's described as your God, your mighty warrior. It's like the mighty warrior who comes back from battle. He's still the beast of a man. Feared. People tremble around him. And yet he, as he enters his house, he reaches out his arms and he picks up his children with loving, tender compassion. And embraces them. Because he's their mighty warrior. I wonder, how do you want to meet him? On that final day of the Lord, the mighty warrior will either meet you in his judgment or in his tender love, singing, rejoicing over you. How do you want to meet him? How do you want your neighbors to meet him, your colleagues, your friends, your family? How do you want to, them to meet the mighty warrior, the Elgabor? Let's conclude very quickly. I guess we see the stark choice. I've tried to make it as clear as possible. Do you see this kind of polarizing reality? Nice people, church-going folk those who do so much for charity in the local community, they're really charming. None of those things really matter in deciding whether the mighty warrior will eternally embrace you in his love or destroy you, sweep you away in his unending judgments. I wonder who you can lovingly warn, who you should be praying for, meeting with. God is the judge, but he does Never leave us without hope. It's here. We've seen it in Zephaniah. He's the only hope that we have. Yes, God is holy and just, and we've seen that. We know the wrath that is to come, but cherish the hope he offers. He's the mighty warrior who, so clearly in verse 17 of chapter 3, saves. He's the mighty warrior who saves. He offers, of course, that hope in the form of the one in whom there was no wrong. Namely, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty saviour. On the cross, the mighty warrior essentially swept away, lifted up his hand against, utterly destroyed... His own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty saviour, who, as Karen reminded us earlier from Isaiah 53, is the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. He took on himself all the justice, all the wrath of the elder bull, of the mighty warrior. Well, how can we know and receive this? How can you receive this hope? Well, as chapter two, verse three says of Zephaniah, we must seek him. We must humble ourselves before him, trusting in his righteousness, not our own. And then and only then we will be sheltered from the judgment to come on that ultimate day of the Lord. I wonder, do you want the mighty warrior to sing and rejoice over you or crush you? To delight in you or sweep you away? Don't think that I've come to this and sort of really enjoyed teaching stuff and I haven't. And don't think that in any way that I am sort of biasing the Bible here. The one thing that Jesus teaches the most on in all of his teaching is this. He lovingly warns of the judgment to come, of the mighty warrior. Please heed the warnings. And trust Jesus the mighty saviour. Let's pray. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you. But will rejoice over you with singing. Lord it's a wonderful picture. May we trust. All the, the good news that we have seen in this slightly frightening book in the Bible. May we trust the mighty warrior who offers us salvation through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty Saviour. Amen.